Cool, so hi everyone. I'm joined today by Mr. Wolf, aka um, Jess's, Jess, Adam and Steph's dad, who is the owner of the building and the owner of Mr. Wolf's and number 51's as well. So thank you for coming on. Um, lots of questions have come in for you about the building, which is obviously um, a big kind of part of all of the businesses. Um, it's such a unique space. A lot of people were interested, first of all, how did you um, find the building and how did you, you, know, you come to owning it? Well, um, St. Nicholas Street is parallel to St. Stephen Street. And Mr. Waltz was originally situated there. And my major concern was always that most live music venues get closed down by developers. So we were trying to find a home for ourselves. Slowly, slowly, we were looking and then the landlord decided that he would evict us. So it put a lot of pressure on us to still find a site for us as a stable home. And I was very much aware that if the live music venue goes, many times they're never replaced. Mm. So just uh, by pure luck, I walked along St. Nicholas Street and saw all of these buildings boarded up and for sale. And that was in the last recession, so it must have been in uh, 2013. Okay. And uh, we are arranged for a viewing, and I was supposed to go with my son, Adam, and daughter, Stephanie, and a chap called Andy. And uh, nobody showed up but me. I met the, the lady at the door, and she said, okay, now a word of warning, it's not pretty inside. So she opened the, the big front door, that's at number 34 St. Nicholas Street, and took me, uh, there was an alarm system that ran off, that uh, rang, that was this intruder alarm that says, you have been warned, do not step any further in the building, it's now on high alert and the security company are coming. So she managed to switch that off <laughs> and she took me up the first flight of stairs and I said, I like it, I'll buy it. She said, you haven't seen the rest of the building yet. I said, I know, but it feels good, doesn't it? And she just laughed at me. So she said, well, let me take you up to the next, at least the first floor. So we went up to the first floor and in the first floor, there was uh, in one of the rooms, a lot of water damage and the boards were rotten and, and the floorboards, half of them were missing. And uh, I said, no, no, I still like it. So she said, okay, well, let's take you up to the next floor. And on the next floor, there were trees growing in there oh and a couple gosh. of pigeons and lots of damage on the ceiling. So I said, okay. So she said, well, there's a bit more of the building yet to see. So we went down the stairs and we went out the back and there was a mini me of the same building of number 34. So she said, let me take you into here. And as we opened the door, about five pigeons flew out and she said, well, I'm not going in with you. So you're going to have to go and have a look at it yourself. So I just went to the ground floor and I could see a lot of pigeons and pigeon drops. And on the stairs, as you went up the stairs, each load Was that the stairs up into here? No, that's the stairs in 34 St. Okay. Street, the mini-me. Yeah. 
So it was exactly the same as the front part of the building, but half the size. It was exactly the same. Isn't We've got okay. an atrium upstairs, a glass atrium, and a smaller atrium than the one that's on in 34. Ah, okay. So as she refused to go up the stairs, and so did I, because as you looked at the stairs, it looked like massive load of eggs, and it was actually pigeon droppings, and they stood about a foot and a half high. So like mini beehives on every single step as you went up. Mm. We later discovered that the pigeons had been nesting in between the floorboards, and there was about eight pigeons. <laughs> So I said, okay. She says, well, that's not quite it yet. So then she took me back into the courtyard, and there was a door that led to the back of what you guys know as the yoga studio, and that's known as 32 and 30 St. Nicholas Street. So we went to the door there, and she found it really difficult to open. It was a total derelict. And uh, when she managed to open the door, and she was nervous, and so was I. I thought a mad axe would come rushing out. <sighs> but it was just more pigeons. And it turned out that the whole pigeon homing society was living with us in these four buildings. <sighs> so from there on, she said, are you serious? You want to buy? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'll buy this. So I said, she said, well, it is under offer. And I said, so what's the offer? And she said, well, it's £480,000. And I said, well, okay, well, we'll offer more. Uh, we'll, she said, well, well, are you sure? And I said, yeah, yeah, we'll offer a bit more. And so we, we offered a bit more money, uh, unbeknownst, obviously, to Adam and Steph and everybody else. And then the big scramble came to find the money. And that was maybe even harder than making a commitment to buy mm. the building. And eventually, um, with... Adam's savings, Steph's savings, my savings, and some inheritance. We put all the money together, and we managed to buy the building with a small mortgage because it was next to impossible to get a mortgage mm. in that recession. Mm. And from there on, um, when we got the building, uh, we discovered the pigeons, and bless them, I've begun to understand pigeons. They're not as bad as what I thought they were. <laughs> I've been reading this book called Homing Pigeons by a, an author who um, bought some pigeons himself and, and started to uh, race them. And so now when I look at a pigeon, I look at them with great affection. But at that time, we just thought they are causing a lot of destruction. And I even have a picture that I saved on my phone from when we bought the building on the very room that we're in now, where the window was broken and there's a pigeon looking down to me on St. Nicholas Street, as if to say, you come into our home, you're in for it, mate. <laughs> so anyway, so after we managed to buy the building, the amount of work that was required was more money than our deep pockets could handle. And they became a grant available from the EU to, uh, it was... A um, hundred thousand pound grant, as long as you spent five hundred thousand pound. God knows how we could do that, and that was based on preserving jobs. Well, the fight that we had with Mr. Wolves at St. Stephen Street and being given notice by the uh, the landlord meant that 
everyone would have lost their jobs. So we qualified them for the grant. It was very strict. And they were, it had to be put into uh, ensuring that we could supply work and new jobs. And if it hadn't been for the grant, it would have made life a lot tougher to do the work. Mm. So when we got into the building, we decided we'd put the building back as it was. And we're talking here now 34 St. Nicholas Street, that we'd put the building back as it was when it was built in 1920. No, 19, I think it's 1907. And this used to be known as the old Bristol Stock Exchange. Mm. And they were five stock exchanges in the UK. There was one in Birmingham, Leeds, London, Bristol, and I'm really sorry, I can't remember the other one. So somebody will let us know one day. So these uh, stock exchanges, they all had their own offices in, and next door to 34 St. Nicholas Street is 36 St. Nicholas Street, which was the main part of the stock exchange, and right now it's an Indian restaurant. And I've always wanted to be able to try and at least buy that Indian restaurant and the, the building itself to preserve it, because... There was a very famous man called George White who loved Bristol and believed in Bristol and invested his money in the transport system, who built trams and, uh, and as we all know, there was uh, uh, the airspace, is it British airspace? Mm. Out in... Um, oh, yeah. Where is it? Out in the, you know, where, the, where Concord is yeah. home now. Yeah, And he, he believed in transport and he invested in aeroplane technology, submarine technology, and this was all 1905, 1912. Uh, and he even built his own planes. And his family then, his son, George White, I think Junior, they would know all these stories better than me, uh, inherited the business as Pa passed away when he was in, I think, 1915. And they developed the business, and they were one of the largest employers in Bristol, uh, after the Second World War, and they had 48,000 people who worked for them out in Filton, that's what's the name of the place, where they were building aircraft and many other things, and also building the Bristol motor car. And the interesting thing about the Bristol motor car is after the Second World War, even though that they were building the Bristol motor car before the Second World War, they managed to get the plans, so I've been told, of the engine and some other developments of BMW, and that's what they use on the Bristol motor car in the early 40s and late 50s. Mm. It's a, a beautiful looking vehicle. I mean, obviously it didn't look like the BMW, I think what they just managed to do, as the Victor often does do, is to you know use some of the mechanics and the engine parts, and then they develop from there. It's still a handmade built car today, but its large factory is now closed down. So um, George White also set up the tram system in Bristol. Oh, I wish we still had trams. I think it would be such an asset to the city. Well, that was public transport, mm. obviously public transport, mm. which was a very contentious issue in the, um, uh, the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. And uh, there was a rule passed that if any tram service uh, overcharge their customers, then the council was allowed to nationalise the trams 
the individual councils and then take over the whole service. So the last remaining one was Bristol. And um, that went on right up before the Second World War. Uh, the council always had a contentious issue with George White, even though that he believed in working people, provided them pensions, a good wage. Things were very different in the uh, early part of the 19th century, where the entrepreneur was looked as a, as a bad person, making money out of people's mm. you know, hard work, and it was never fairly distributed. But that's not what George White believed in, although it was disputed. So eventually the council managed to uh, prove that he had overcharged on one of his tram rides. They nationalised it, and then within a month they tore up all the tram lines. And of course now, he was way ahead of his time, because that's exactly as public transport as what we needed. Mm, I can see it now, a little trolley going up Park Street. It would have been great. And then he also drew a map of uh, Bristol about how the tram system would go all the way out to fish ponds and the other areas. And it was a colour-coded map, and it can be seen, I think, in the Bristol archives and mm. can still be seen today. And it looks very similar to the map that they did for the underground mm. much later on. So he was an inspiration for people, but all he wanted was to see Bristol develop and move forward, and that was his joy. Anyway, back to our story of where your building is now. So the building itself in the 1920s, um, this, where we're standing, was a pub. And this the, is the Radnor Hotel, is that the right? Radnor Hotel yeah. is a pub. And the reason, they, as far as history as we can go back, is we believe that in 1928, the Broadhurst family who came here, who opened it up. I think one of them was Dutch. I don't want to be quoted, so everyone runs back here and says I'm wrong. <laughs> one of them was Dutch, a Dutch gentleman, and that's a lady. And uh, they were married, and they moved in here, and they called it the Broadhurst, uh, sorry, the Radnor Hotel. It never was a hotel. They called it a hotel. And I think it was because they were having lots of good fun and shenanigans and different styles of party. Now, the couple, as the rumour has, and it's not a fact, but was the first alternative bar for people who had a different sexual orientation. And that the parties and the fun would go on to the upper floors. It was only up until the 1940s when it became notoriously a pub where people with different sexual orientations could feel safe and comfortable to come. And as you go into the pub, there was uh, the service to your left. And then it wasn't a large pub. And then over to your right, there was a curtain. And behind that curtain, you were allowed to go. And whatever went behind that curtain, I think you had to have permission to go behind the curtain, anything went. And people could be relaxed and be themselves and do whatever they wanted to do. So I think there were lots of parties and lots of Bordello things going on and lots of excitement for people that they felt in a safe environment. Ironically, as the 70s came and the 80s, the, the pub itself, which I believe was in Peggy Radner, came along who ran the pub for many years. And Is I that did, the daughter of... I don't think so. I don't, oh, okay. I'm not Is sure. Radner a Bristol name then or how did they get the name Radner? I have not a clue. Okay. I have not. 
exotic, really. <laughs> so uh, there was a famous jeweler called Radner who got, you know, used to make cheap jewelry or, or fair price jewelry mm. used to sell, and then he was hounded out of his business because it was a, a large UK company because he said, who would buy my trash jewelry? And unfortunately, then the newspapers made mincemeat of him in the oh. early 20th century. So going back to uh, these guys, so then come the 80s, um, when um, the son, and I'm pretty sure where he came in here one day and told me he was the son of one of the, the, the landladies that lived here, wanted to stop the pub being a gay pub. And I'm mentioning gay now because what happened um, in the early 80s with the AIDS epidemic, everyone got quite hostile to people's sexual orientation and didn't understand it or how to, to deal with what was to be an epidemic of um, a, um, a disease is the wrong word, an epidemic of, what, what would you call it? It's a virus, isn't it? A virus, yeah. thank you. So this virus that infected people and nobody understood. So what would happen then is people would come by and break the windows and terrorize people in here. And so he felt that he had had enough and it wasn't what he wanted to do. So he ran it as what we would now call just a mixed couples pub and had wanted nothing else to do with it. I mean, in many ways, he was hounded out of business. But this was people's fear. And I remember in the very early 80s, one of the first people that died with AIDS, the poor chap was disowned and nobody would come to him. The only person that looked after him in the end was his mother. And this was in Vancouver where we lived. And of course, we didn't understand it because you just didn't know how this uh, virus uh, developed itself. And she said, well, I'm his mother. What do you think I'm going to do? And he was the most wonderful man. We all knew him. But we all turned our backs on him when we didn't know. And of course, as you begin to understand these things a bit more, and we all became a bit better educated, we realized that, you know, they were all perfectly safe. We could all work together and do everything as we always did uh, without turning our back on them. So it was a very hard, hard time for pubs that had an alternative choice in the early 80s. And that's when this pub changed what it had on offer. And of course, then we had a few other pubs that came into Bristol. I believe the Elephant, which is called the Boardroom, that became the, mm. um, the uh, gay bar. And then uh, since then, I think that's also now closed. And there's more nightclub places which um, uh, offer that type of um, offer to people, which is a shame. But, but then again, we have to look at all our bars and pubs now to welcome everybody. And there shouldn't be a stigma and say, well, I've got to be like saying, I would only like to go to a pub of old age pensioners because I know one. The idea is let's have a place that's welcoming for everybody, whatever your orientation is. So going back to that, as, as the city centre itself in Bristol started to deteriorate and um, I don't know if you know, but the whole of the city centre of Corn Street and St. Nicholas, St. Stephen's, was the commerce. And that's where everybody worked, all the lawyers, because the court buildings were close by. So this is where all the hub and the central activity happened. But then the council, uh, and the council always seemed to be 10 years behind their own thoughts, 
is decided in their infinite wisdom, I know, let's now take away from the city center the, the, um, the admin and the, uh, the working people, and let's move them out to near motorways and to purpose-built areas, and that was where the focus was. So when that happened, mm. the whole of this area started to die, and we saw the deterioration of the buildings and the lack of interest in it. And then slowly in the very early, uh, sorry, in the late 90s, um, bars started to open up on Corn Street to replace the banks that were there. And how bars ran in the 90s and uh, in the different areas um, were quite different to how bars are run today. And they were self-policing and it was sometimes like the wild, wild west. <laughs> so... The council then decided that the uh, thing that they should do was to make the, the nightlife to be moved out of, so this is in the 90s, to be moved out of this central area, and that this area would become a restaurant and eating and meeting place, and the nighttime economy would move down to where the uh, floating harbour is. Now... It was a wonderful idea, but in hindsight, of course, then they realized what they had created is a nighttime economy that was only accessible to people that wanted to go there to party like it was Ibiza. So it alienated people of families and, of course, were all attracted to go to where the water is and to go to places where we can get something to eat. But who would want to bring their families when this whole site had been developed for everyone to get tanked up, get drunk, f and blind, and make the place really a no-go zone. So their other thought at the same time was to have the central part of the old city, which is this old city, is to then decide that this would become the dining area and the uh, eating area for Bristol. Well, the one big issue there, and the big folly, and the big mistake was, that everybody wants to sit outside. Now, we already knew this in the 90s. This wasn't rocket science. We already knew this in the 90s. But what they decided to do, they would make focus for this for the old city. And eventually, the long-term plan was to close the streets down. Well, of course, the folly was that lots of people invested their money into this area for restaurants or whatever, and there's nowhere for them to sit outside. Who wants to be part and cooped up inside office buildings as beautiful as they are? And the other thing was that to have a nighttime economy down in the area where the floating harbour is, obviously the people could fall in the water, there was a lot more risk to these people. So, and then it was a lot harder to police it because there were so many options for badly behaved people to run off and go wherever they wanted. Whereas in the old city, there's only three streets. So now, actually, we've gone back to square one. So now the council have been quite like our nighttime economy to be into the old city. Mm. And in the floating harbour, family accessible. And exactly right, where it was everywhere else in the world. But only us in Bristol could have come up with that plan. <laughs> so, unfortunately, because of the options of what happened is it made the old city become even less developed 
and run down. So in their haste, people then started, which I do agree with, is to do a mixed dwelling into the old city. Mixed dwellings are really important, where you have people working, living, and a nighttime economy. But up until the early 205, this is, is the council allowed people to do these mixed dwellings without any consideration to the people that lived in these new flats that were being built. So no soundproofing, no double glazing, nothing was done for these people and developers just came here and just developed flats into basically what was offices or shops. And now these people that have moved into these areas as the new nighttime economy has come in and now are complaining about the noise and asking the council to do things about well, the council had, and this is not a go about the council, by the way, but the council had, right at the very beginning of the time, that when any planning commission was put forward to them, that they had to follow certain regulations, and they always had to inform the uh, EHO that was in charge of noise. Uh, there is neighbourhood what is a neighbourhood, it's called the neighbourhood something. Um, but they decided they wouldn't pass that planning on. And the planning offices were just rubber stamping all these apartments and flats to be developed here. So now we're sort of having to go backpedaling a little bit to ensure that we can make this whole little area of the old city work for everybody with a mixture of use. But somehow we've got to go and address the poor people that are living here and are living through what sounds like Beirut or hmm. party night at Beirut at 10 o'clock at night. You know, that it's a big fun hub city on a Friday and Saturday night and there's people that need to go to work and get sleep. Mm. And of course, they complain to the council. Then the council comes to the live music venues and says, if you don't address your noise that you're polluting the areas, we're going to have to take you to court. So it really is a double-edged sword for everybody. And I'm not too sure how it is going to turn out in the next few years. But right now, we have a progressive council that acknowledges the nighttime economy as an important part to our business. But what's also an important part of our business is to have mixed use in the buildings. And so we come back to square one about what happened to this building. So my thoughts for the building was that we needed all four of them really here, is to have mixed dwelling use. So we have provided a working, sleeping, and also a nightclub venue. God bless all the people that are here. And uh, so we've got a mixed dwelling use, and we also have a conference room here where people can use. Because it's so important that our city becomes alive, and you just can't make it a dormitory city. You need all of these businesses to thrive and then shops and, and goods that can be available for people can survive as well once you mix the dwelling up. Now, I was very fortunate that my daughter, who decided she was going to become a yoga Zen teacher, and we know nothing about yoga, was looking for a place and I said, come on down here, I've got a space that you can use. So she was very excited when she came down and I said, I think this would make a great yoga studio. And she agreed with us. And we then took the floor, which she's on, 
which had no flooring at all, I don't think. And I said, look, let's make this place something that people can use. And we developed it, all of us, as a family together, to make the site look what we consider to be a respectful, a respectful look to the building itself. Mm. Where we've exposed the stonework, so you can see different times of how the building had been formulated. So we took the old plaster off and the old plasterboard, and then regrouted the stone that was there and preserved the stone. So people can see a whole mix of things. And if you go into the yoga studio, you see a very earthy feel, I think, of the building. And this is just saying to the building, look, we love what you did, and we're giving you this building back. So that when you go down to the floor below the yoga studio, where the Radnor Hotel was, uh, they did have a function room. And there was a picture of a chandelier there, and I think it would have been a cheap chandelier from British home stores when we used to do uh, chandeliers, and that was an old company, British home stores, and they used to have some very nice lighting. So we've managed to find a chandelier that is a, actually done from the 1920s. And again, it's putting back in the building what it was. This was the Radnor Hotel's function room, where they'd have private meals and parties up on that floor. As you go to the outside spaces, we understand, even though that it was a pub, I believe the upper floors was run by um, some law firms. And the reason the law firms were here is, again, because we're coming back to square one, because the stock exchange was here, and so they all fed off each other. The unfortunate thing is, or fortunate thing, is as computers came on board, and I believe this is in 1968 or 69, the old stock exchange was eventually closed down. And the reason being is because the London Stock Exchange was built and there was no reason anymore because all the business would go through London. And um, all of the local stock exchanges where we mentioned in the very early part of this in Leeds, Birmingham, and we can't remember where the other two were, um, Newcastle and of course Bristol, they were all shut down and all the main business uh, went there. Now, the sad thing is that, of course, that once um, it was closed down and there were the big safes downstairs, then, as is the way, everyone comes and pillage and takes everything out of original stuff, mm. and takes out all the old documents. And, you know, we, unfortunately, when we were doing work, somebody took the brass... Uh, signs off the safe doors and more than likely have sold them on eBay. They don't really care. But it's a great shame because it's important that this is what the building was and it should have stayed as is. Um, the uh, old brass plaque, if anyone knows, uh, we want to be able to recreate. That was also stolen. It was on the outside of the building. that's called it the old Bristol Stock Exchange. We've done a story on the inside of the old Bristol Stock Exchange, celebrating George White's life. And also, we've done a blue plaque for him, uh, not the, uh, there's a blue plaque, I think, done by the National Trust or somebody that wants you rate for a blue plaque. But we did our own and put it on the outside of the building. Because it's important that people's lives are celebrated and that the building itself is. So if you come into the building of the old Stock Exchange now, you will see that the um, 
offices are exactly the same offices as they were in 1907. So the same companies are on the doors. And we've etched that onto the Ah, glass. I've always wondered about that. Mm. Um, I thought that was really interesting. I always wondered about that. I was like, are they, are they still here? They can't, can't be. <laughs> They're definitely not still here. <laughs> we were never sure which doors they were, so we've done random choices yeah. and just put them on. And that's, again, just trying to savour the building, you know, putting the karma back in the building. The building's a beautiful building, and I wanted people to come into the building and not for it just to be little flats where people would be living in. So the building is used, and it's put back what it always did do. Now, I told you about the old Indian restaurant, that in our basement, there are stairs that lead to the Indian restaurant that have been blocked up, and from the Indian restaurant into uh, the old stock exchange. And if anyone can go and have a look at the Indian restaurant, before all the plaster coating gets destroyed, which is, as I've and again, I would love to be able to buy it and preserve it and to make it look right. You can go downstairs to the toilets, and the old word of a throne is really there, that where you step up and you sit on a toilet like it's on the throne, and the original toilets are still there, and the hand sinks. Now, the inside of that main building was designed uh, to represent George White's house, so when he came to work, he wanted to see a sort of mini version of his house. Hmm. So there's some beautiful, ornate stuff to, to go and check out there, and worth going. So now coming back to the Radna rooms, and why do we call the, uh, our function room the Radna rooms? Because it was the Radna Hotel. So this is a salute to the people that have worked hard and put things in here. You know, people that are always remembered are our prime ministers or pop stars or famous people, and all the working people that uh, work hard and sweat and toil and do all their troubles, we're all sort of forgotten. But this is my way of saying thank you for all the hard work that mm, they've done. Mm. And that's why we've put the building back as we perceive it to be, or as, as other people would come in and say, I love this, it's so nice what you've done. And that's what we've had come back to us. Even the windows, instead of what the council will allow, and I'm hoping they're stopping, is even the windows here that are built, some of the windows are original from uh, before the 19th century, uh, we've redone, refixed, and it costs a lot of money. And what we didn't want to do is put plastic PVC yeah. or any window like that. So it's all about touch, isn't it? When you go into a building, you want to be able to touch it and feel that it's been there just mm, for you, mm. instead of some of this modern building technology that's come in, that's appalling. And I'm sure that, you know, in the next few years, that people are going to come up with better ways of insulating windows and using this disgusting PVC that is no good even after 20 years. What is the point? And of course, when buildings are sold and there's now they have to have these uh, tests done on them to see how efficient they are they won't recognize if you put big thick curtains up to the windows that that is one way of insulating your building mm, mm. they want to see some nice plastic in now i do hope that we will see as time progresses that that will stop of course there are wooden sash windows today that you can buy with double glazing in but they still look pretty ugly even when they're mm. up. So 
there's a whole change of thoughts about how we're going to keep our homes warm and what we've got to do. And I hope that we at least, you know, with the what we've implemented, will help our building remain and people come and love and enjoy it. And if you go to the old Stock Exchange building, the original windows are still there, but we took the panes of glass out and put double gla uh, glazed glass in. It's not that wide, but at least it makes the offices warmer for them. Mm -hmm. But all the original wood, everything's there. But what we have to accept that over time, that window will get frosted up and they'll all have to be replaced. And if you look at the windows, you'll see that there's all the names of companies that did exist in the Bristol Stock Exchange and we put those on the windows. And again, that's just saying, look, you know, that is our history. People think it's original. Of course, it's not original because the windows have all been replaced. But it's just to say the stock exchange existed. There were people that lived and worked and all, you know, put a lot into it. And this is to say our thank you to them. And it's my thank you that the businesses have succeeded inside this building here. We deliberately keep our rents low so that people can succeed as their startup businesses. And then as they get bigger, they shove their finger up to me and say they're off to a much better mm. office mm. in a much better location and au revoir à tout alert. So that's what we want to see so other startup people can come and they can come into our place and start their business up. And I understand that now that uh, even the yoga studio is saying a tutelar to me a little bit. So now I'm going to Sweatbox and my daughter's <laughs> told me that, Dad, we can now look like we can get 60 people in our studio, not 28. So <coughs> people move on and, and I was saying to her crazily, I said, you know, what we need to do, I think, eventually is on the top floor if the yoga studio does stay with us, we need to put a atrium up, so a nice glass roof so that we can get all that beautiful air mm, coming in. Mm. So that'll be our next step. But we'll see whether sometimes mm. the yoga studio, as you know, it's all about, you don't want to talk about money. Mm. Money works. Mm. Money makes it all happen. Mm. And it's great to see you guys developing and taking on a new site and uh, spreading the good health regime yeah. around for stretch, mm -hmm. breathing, and love. I like it. Yeah. Oh, well, that was a lovely insight into a history, not just of the building, but I think kind of a real feel for mm. Bristol as well and how Bristol's gone through many changes. Mm. Um, so what is, so you mentioned a bit about the atrium and do you have a vision for the building for the future? Do you see anything changing? And well, we can't change the building too much, mm. but what we will do is, I like the idea of an atrium, and I'd like to link this top floor up with next door, mm. so it would have a whole feeling, of course, remember, that wasn't what the building was, Yeah. but I think that for people um, like the Radnor Hotel, and the Broadhurst family, and then there's Peggy, uh, what's the last name, because it's um, Peggy, anyway, there's an Auntie Peggy that mm. was in the... Uh, Radnor Hotel for many years that she was known for, um, that they would all, if they could come back, would be happy with what we've done. Mm. And uh, that the building is being used. Mm. That's what's so important. Mm. Mm. Um, 
Um, is it what you kind of expected then? Uh, no, I think the, the building itself is, you, you have to grow with it. Um, yeah. Let me tell you, it wasn't just my idea. There were other people who were very much involved. And um, I hope that we've done what the building asks us to do. Not what we want to do, mm. but what the building asks us to do. And I think that we've managed to achieve that. Because although it's just all stone, remember that they, they were hands that put that stone in and wooden floors that put it down. And, and that's what the building wanted. And I hope that the building will be happy with what we've achieved. I know the building doesn't have a, a uh, thinking stance, but I'm sure it's got a soul and a heart mm, as we know it. Mm, mm. And I hope that the building's happy with what we've done. Mm. A lot of people asked, um, actually, has there been any paranormal activity? Well, the, there were a couple of ladies who um, left me their pictures, and I keep trying to give them back to them. They don't want them back, and they claim that they, there was that. Uh, left you pictures? What do you uh, mean, sorry? Uh, just pictures of the pub. And okay. The word there, and, yeah. Uh, and I keep telling them, well, I haven't told them for two years now, because I've given up. But they, yeah. They're out in Bedminster, and they told me that, Yes, that they heard that, and there were people walking on the top floor. Well, I'm going to tell you, I think it was the pigeons. Yeah. <laughs> but um, if there's power, well, let's hope that if there is, that there would be, that no one's heard any footsteps since, and so maybe they're all very contented and happy. Mm, mm, I, I think so. They, uh, they were, it was a woman's footsteps, and they didn't like men. So... How anyone could have established that, I don't know. Yeah. I did ask Jess, and as Jess did live up here, I think she seemed pretty set that there was there was no ghosts. Yeah. Um, There's contentment. Yeah, I think so. And sometimes, you know, you do hear creaks and whatnot, but I yeah. think that, you know, the building kind of does obviously have its own energy, but yeah, yeah. less of kind of a natural haunting mm. anyway. Mm. What's it like having all of your children then in the business now? So you've got all three of them... <laughs> in the empire it's not an empire I always say that word um, it's a collective a collective and, yeah uh, and this collective does share with everyone else no matter what people think mm. so maybe Queen Envy and saying it's all got shed of money that's not we put everything back in mm. what we have it's a collective um, the hardest thing is funnily enough because Jessica does something quite different what we are, mm. we hardly ever see us, so we normally say we'll see you on the street. So that's about it. Mm. Because I've got bad knees, I um, don't come up the steps. I don't come up the steps <laughs> much because they just as painful going up as coming down. Mm. So um, I thought, well, I'd better try and meet up with her occasionally. So yesterday we um, had dinner together, and then we went to the cinema and saw uh, a film called. Mr. Rogers, what a wonderful neighborhood, or whatever it is. Mm. And really, that is what life is. It's about a neighborhood, and it's about, um, you know, a day-to-day -day contact with people. And I hope that this building has provided that, especially from the yoga studio, where people get to as a meeting place. Mm. Of course, Mr. Waltz is quite different as a bar where it's a meeting place. But the working environment for people as well which is all offices here, instead of people closing their doors as a, as a um, residential space where the actual uh, meeting of people is very limited, this way 
we've opened the doors up. Um, mm. I think that's a good thing for everybody. Mm, mm. There's such a sense of um, community here in the studio, um, which is really lovely. And what's the best business advice um, that you've been given or that you've maybe got to share for anyone kind of looking to start up? Well, I would say that business is extremely tough. And in America, they make you believe and in business that anyone can make it if they're mm. Mm. That's not really true. Because a lot of people lose a lot of money. Yeah. And don't worry, I've lost a, a, a lot of money and I can't afford to lose that money. But, you know, that we have done that, but we've been allowed to learn from our mistakes and build on it. Yes, you have to stick with it, but don't get mixed up. I have a dream. You know, sometimes there's nothing wrong with working for people and you can make, you know, a good standard of living working. I would say, you know, I've seen many people that have started a business. No one opens a business to fail. Nobody. Mm. But so many of them do. And it destroys their lives often. And, you know, it's, it's not just the money all they lose. They lose relationships through failed businesses. Mm. You know, they lose their friends through failed businesses. It is really tough. So if you ask me, would I say go off and open a business? I would be a little bit apprehensive. <laughs> it is really tough. Mm -hmm. And, you know, many of us end up working for others, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. Mm. You know, that if you can all make a decent living, then you've all succeeded. So having a business is not a sign of success. It's just a different avenue. People working for people, that's a success. If they're contributed to make work more successful for others and more people can be hired, that is a success. Mm. Mm. Oh, that's, I'm um, not sure if I've answered your question. No, but I think that is a lovely, a lovely way of looking at it. Um, someone also wanted to know, what's the weirdest thing that you found while stripping the building? Did you find any strange old artifacts? Uh, sadly, um, most of the building um, has been stripped out of any of the artifacts. Yeah. But remember one thing. Artifacts are what people bring in. Mm. Okay, so did I find a hidden treasure? No. I found a lot of pigeons. <laughs> and I had no respect for them, but now I've got a lot of respect. So when I look at a pigeon now, and I look at its colour on its wings, and I look at them, I really actually think they're very beautiful. But up and when we took the building, I thought they were hell, and they were burning. Mm. But we had to block them all out. So my treasures here have, we've had to put them back. So... Where there's been damage, we've put them back. Our floorboards are a treasure, especially the, the floorboards that's in number building number 32. The coding is a treasure. To find the lath and plaster still on the walls and us to repair it, that's the treasures. And that's the treasure of the building. Mm, mm. It is such, it's just such a wonderful building um, with so many amazing nooks and crannies. Um, yeah, finally, uh, we've all heard that you're a very good cook and that you like to bake and Jess takes after you and she often brings us in lovely treats. Mm -hmm. So we wondered what your favourite thing to bake is. Well, I think the best thing for anyone to bake is to, to know how to knead bread. Bread okay. is a wonderful item mm. because it's warm as you knead it and it gets really elasticy and it, it gets all of your... Not frustrations out, but it's just so nice that you can get lost into it. So 
anyone can make bread and not use those silly bread machines. And even if it's just a two-pound loaf, funnily enough, whole wheat bread, uh, to knead a whole wheat loaf, doesn't give you the same feeling as making a bad boy white loaf. Mm. I don't know why, but when you're kneading a white loaf and you're stretching it and you're putting it in the palm of your hand and you're moving it along a wooden table, all of that contact is really wonderful. So I would say to people that I've enjoyed doing bread the most to, to make it because what happens is once you've formed it and you see it raised and it's beautiful the way it is and it's got a certain smell to it and then you put it in the oven and bake, is there any better smell than baked bread? Mm. Oh, lovely. And what a nice thing to finish off. Um, that was, yeah, so fascinating and... Yeah, this building is a curious building that's full of so much life. And I really, I do think you've done such an amazing job restoring it. It's become such a well-loved part of kind of, you know, Bristol culture. I've got memories of dancing on the stage at Mr. Wolf's when I was at uni. And then now being able to work at the studio is um, it's just, yeah, honestly, such a pleasure. So thank you so much for um, coming on and sharing all of your amazing knowledge with us. I think you should write a, um, a book, to be honest. There's... <laughs> <laughs> there's so much information in there thank you for listening to episode six of the wolf cast with mr wolf it was such a pleasure and totally fa fascinating to hear everything he had to say not only just the history of the building but also social history of bristol too keep your eyes peeled for a blog coming soon with additional excerpts if you're listening on itunes and enjoyed this podcast don't forget to give us five stars and let us know your thoughts and suggestions on Instagram at Tales of Wild Wolves. We'll see you soon.